So when you were young, I suspect that someone at some point in time asked you that key question. What are you going to be when you grow up? Now, maybe people are still asking you that question. Uh, Sometimes after I have behaved in a way that was a little immature, people ask me, so what are you going to be when you grow up? But that's a whole different subject. What are you going to be when you grow up? I remember when I was little, people would ask me that question. And usually that question was followed by a second question. Are you going to be a pastor like your dad? Now, this, being a pastor is like the family business in my family. My, my father, uh, all, all of my grandparents, my uncles. I think I'm like 11th or something in my family that I know of. And, and so people say, you're going to be a pastor like your dad. And I would always say to them, well, I don't know. But what I was really wanting to scream out was, are you kidding me? That's the last thing I want to do. And there's other, God has a story. He works in things to get me to this place from what I thought I was going to be. But you're all, you know, people are wondering, what are we going to be when we grow up? But you know, the, the bigger question is not just what our occupation is going to be. The real deeper question is, what are we going to be? And that's a question that's deeper than what do we do. It's who we are. Robert Mulholland says, Every person's in the process of spiritual formation. Either we're being conformed to the image of Christ, or we're being conformed to a destructive caricature of the image of Christ. That's about who we are. And I'm convinced that that God wants to conform us into the image of Christ because it's in the image of Christ that we find intimacy with him, closeness with him. And in that intimacy and closeness, we experience the fullness of who he is. Of joy and peace and life, shalom. And that's God's intent for us. That's why he created human beings, that we would have that experience with him. I think that's why God creates tension in this world. As I said last week, the minute God said to Adam that you can eat of any tree in the garden except for that one tree, he created a world with tension. And God creates that world with tension for probably a lot of reasons, but one of them is so that we would always recognize that we need him. Without that tension, we feel like I go my own merry way, I do whatever I want, and I'm fine, I'm good. And we miss God. We separate ourselves from God. But the tension creates a need for faith. And that faith draws us closer and closer to Him. And there are lots of dynamics in which that faith plays out in our lives. And one of them is in the, in the area of what we believe. And I think there's something of that that Jesus is describing here in Matthew chapter 13. It wasn't all that long ago that verse 52 came alive for me. It's one of those verses that, that you read and you, and you don't see it. But in this verse, he says, Every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. What intrigues me about that is that he says, If you're a part of the kingdom, you are a, you could, you're a teacher. And a teacher is is someone who knows, someone who has learned, someone who has figured out some things so that they can pass that along to other people. That's what a teacher is. That's what a teacher does. And Jesus seems to be implying that in the kingdom, there are things that we know. There are things that that are core 
to who we are and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There are foundational things in our faith. And we need to embrace those things and hang on to those things. Those things are, are what we might call the dogma of our faith. Or it's, probably, it's really what the creeds are trying to do for us. Is to, in a way, systematize those things in, in, a, in the nature of how we can understand them. And so they put them into the context of these statements. And these are the core things of what it means to believe. What it means to be a Christian. And those things are non-negotiable. I remember reading number of years now, uh, an interview that, that uh, Christopher Hitchens did with someone on NPR. And Christopher Hitchens, if you're not aware, was uh, probably one of the leading apologists for atheism. He was, he was not only brilliant and, and not only outspoken, but he was really good at, at talking about being an atheist and talking about uh, things he talked about against Christianity and other religions for that matter. He wrote the book, I think the title of it, God is Not Good, God is Not Great. And, you know, this is his perspective, this is his mindset. And he spent his life trying to, to keep people from, from religion. So he's in this interview, and near the beginning of the interview, this woman says to him, now, most of your writings are directed toward what I would call the fundamentalist part of religion. And she said, but I'm a liberal Christian. I don't believe in the authority of the scriptures. I, I don't believe that, that uh, Jesus uh, died on the cross for our sins. I don't, believe, I don't believe any of those things. I don't believe in the incarnation. I don't believe in any of that stuff. So what would you say to me a, as a Christian? And Christopher Hitchens looked at her and said, well, ma'am, he said, if, if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Messiah and that he rose from the dead, and that by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, then I would have to say that you're really not in any meaningful way a Christian. And she said, well, let's talk about something else for a little bit now. And, you know, even though Christopher Hitchens rejected it, he understood what sometimes we miss, that there are foundational core things about being a follower of Jesus that are non-negotiable. And the minute you pull those things out of our faith, you have pulled the very foundations out of our faith. Those things are solid. It's what Jesus called maybe old gems, old treasures, as he speaks here. But Jesus also says every teacher is to be a disciple. And the very nature of a disciple is not that they have learned, but that they are learning not that they know so much as that they are knowing. There is an ongoing nature to that of being a disciple. And Jesus says that the people who understand the kingdom not only embrace the old truths, but they also are open to new truths, new ideas, new things from God. And often we find ourselves in this tension trying to figure out how we do that. Because on the one hand, we, sometimes we can get so enamored with the, with the foundational things that we say, I don't want to hear anything else. I figured it out. I, I'm comfortable where I am. I don't want to talk about other stuff. And on the other hand, you have people who are so enamored with what's new that the old stuff is, I'm, well, I'll reject the old stuff if something new comes along that feels better to me. Our own John Case has been reading his newest book, Around the Tables. It's a, it's a fascinating study about 
how Christians talk about Jesus to each other and to others. And one of the things he talks about in there is that for a lot of people, we see what we believe as a Rubik's Cube. And the goal is to get the Rubik's Cube to where all the dots on it are lined up. That, that's the goal. And, and I mean, I've done a Rubik's Cube before. I'm not very good at it. I had to have somebody show me how to do it. And here's the thing. Once they showed me how to do it, the last thing I was going to do was mess it up again. I'm putting it on the shelf and say, look, I did it. It's done. It's finished. And a lot of times that's how we view what we believe. I've got, I, I understand. I, this is good. I figured it out. I don't want to talk about anything else. I don't want to entertain the fact that some ideas you have for me might actually challenge some things that, that, that I interpret. And he says, John says in this book that he had a professor in grad school who said to them, you really ought to think do about doing theology like you're using a loose-leaf notebook. And he said that that really, uh, really irritated some of the other people in his class. But he said, actually, that's what the church has been doing through the centuries. Every new generation has to find new ways to interpret things and to understand things. And what we learn keeps building on what we've already learned. And what we're learning keeps building on what we have already figured out. And, and, and because God is not a stagnant God. God is a dynamic God. And he is always revealing more and more to us because the honest truth is, do you think any of us have understood and figured out everything there is to know about God? And everything God wants to teach us and say to us and do in us? Hardly. We're all on the journey. And this is, it's this tension of figuring those things out. I think part of the struggle is that there is a sense of, of security in feeling like in, in one or the other. I have security in this is what I believe. And, and, and I'm not even talking about, I'm not talking so much about the dogma as I am the way we interpret things. In our perhaps our theological perspective or the way we were raised, that really isn't about the foundational things, but it's about the, the, the next level of things. The way different groups interpret things. And sometimes that's where we want to fight the most. That's where we want to put down our foot the most. That's where because that's where our identity is. You say, so what's your belief system? Well, I'm this or I'm this, and, and we fight about that. And the issue is knowledge is power. And, and power, the only answer to power is humility. And what I think we're being called to is humility. Isn't it fascinating that the Apostle Paul, who knows so much and has come so far, and we could say he is the expert in figuring things out. He says to the Philippians, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on. I'm learning. I'm growing. Jesus says to his disciples on a variety of occasions, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little child. What is it little children do? They keep learning. They're always learning new things, something new probably every day. Children are learning. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. And then you, it's fascinating to me that the very first beatitude that Jesus gives us is, blessed are the poor in spirit... Blessed are those, or another way of saying that is, blessed are the humble-minded. But theirs is the kingdom of God. Where do we get that idea of being humble-minded as inheriting the kingdom of God? It comes from Jesus himself, who says to his disciples in Matthew 11, 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me because I am gentle and humble in heart. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, it's going to mean embracing humility. Does it mean that we throw out the, the core of things? Not for a minute. That's the foundation. We, we have to have that. But we're always learning, always growing. And here's what I find the test of our humility is if God asks us to learn from someone unexpected, are we open enough to learn it? I know there are people, every one of us wrestles with people in our lives who we think they could never teach me anything. Surely God couldn't speak through them. Maybe it's an issue of gender. God, God, God couldn't speak to me through uh, a, a woman. Maybe it's an issue of, of age. That person's too old. They've lost it. They're past it. They could never teach me. That person's too young. I'm way ahead of them. There's nothing they could ever teach me. Maybe it has to do with, with a theological system. Somebody who is a follower of Calvin or Wesley or Luther or they're Catholic or whatever the case may be. Maybe it's a racial issue. Maybe it's a nationalistic issue. We all have things in our lives that subconsciously we are thinking, that person, it's unlikely that person would ever be able to teach me anything. Sometimes for me, if I'm reading along something and I disagree with something someone says, I just feel in my mind, I'm starting to think, well, that person could never teach me anything because we disagree on this point. I have to fight that. Because what am I really wrestling with? My arrogance. And God is continually wanting to break down our arrogance. In, in John Case's book, he, he uh, talks about John Wesley and, and how John Wesley, in his um, further uh, thoughts on Christian perfection, says he found it necessary to give careful advice to the emerging Methodists who were keen to promote their distinctive teaching of Christian perfection. His first bit of advice was to constantly be on guard against pride. He says, if you think that since God is so obviously teaching you, you no longer need to be taught by mere humans. Pride lies at the door, he says. He goes on to say, Wesley says, you have need to be taught not only by Mr. Morgan, one of the leaders of the church, but by one another, by Mr. Maxfield or me, also the weakest preacher in London. Yea, All people. Don't say to anyone, Wesley urges, who would dare challenge or reprove you, that you were blind and you cannot teach me. Maybe one of the great tests of our humility is are we open to let God speak to us from anyone? If God were to come to us and say, look, I want to show you something through that person that you think is unlikely, would we be willing to say, okay, Lord, teach me? It doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything they say. It doesn't mean that we have to to buy into everything that everybody else tells us. But do we have an open enough spirit that God would speak to us through anyone and we would hear it? Because we're humble of heart. It's a challenge. Because it really is about spiritual formation. It's about becoming, being conformed to the image of Christ. And, and as Robert Mulholland says, to be conformed to the image of Christ is going to mean confrontation in the places where we want it the least but need it the most. 
To be conformed to the image of Christ means God is going to reach into that place of our brokenness. Why do we hesitate to, to think that somebody else might be able to teach us something that's unlikely? One of the reasons is because we're afraid. We're fearful of being, of being shown that we don't know it all. Sometimes it's because it's in, it's in pain and the struggles that we've been through. And, and something about our pain triggers thoughts about that person or that group of people. And we think, yeah, I could never hear anybody anything from that. And that's the very place that God needs to work to heal us. It's like going to the dentist. You know, most people don't like going to the dentist. Most of the time, I don't mind going to the dentist. Something about working around my teeth and fat just puts me to sleep. You know, I'm just, nobody, people can't understand that, but I just start drifting off. And I don't mind going to the dentist as long as everything in my teeth is, are okay. It's those times when I know there's a problem, I don't want to go to the dentist. Because they've got tools and things that I don't want to see. Right? That's what scares us. The dentist is fine. It's the stuff the dentist uses. That's what scares us. And they've got that one little probe thing with a little hook on the end of it. I don't know what you call it. But, but they, start, they start poking that down in your teeth, right? And poking it all along there. And I don't want that probe in my mouth when I know when they get to that molar right there, it's going to shoot pain through my mouth. And they have to pry my lips open to get that probe into there. But the reality is, that's exactly what I need. Because I'm not going to, that tooth's not going to get better if I don't let the, the dentist probe it. The dentist is probing it so that he can do what he needs to do to heal it. And if I leave it, if I will not let the dentist probe on that tooth, you can do any other tooth you want, but not that one, it's going to rot. And probably rot other teeth. And the dentist is the one that does the healing work. I just have to let him. And God does the healing work in that bro- those broken places. He's just asking us to let him. And one of the primary ways in which God works healing in our brokenness is to, is to call us to come to him in humble faith and say, Okay, teach me. Change me. Work in me. It's hard. But it's the way to life. That's why we've titled this sermon series, Tension to Tapestry. Because what this is really about is, is the tensions that are, that are part of our world and a part of our faith as followers of Christ are leading us to something beautiful. And so we've got these looms up here. I've been learning things about weaving in the loom. After last week, I'm amazed at how many people in our congregation have either been or are weavers. And they've been telling me things and teaching me things. And, and one of the things that I've discovered is that the, the threads that go this way, this is the warp, and this way is the weft. Now, that's something you might, you might come up with in a trivia game sometime, that you know that, the warp and the weft. And the warp goes this way, and this has to be laid out before you do anything else. And, and you can see in this, you can see how this, there, the, this, uh, that's actually a picture of this. And if you go to the next slide, you see these little metal things here, they're called heddles. 
And there's just a really tiny little hole, the eye, that every one of the strings has to be threaded through a different heddle all across here. It's an extremely time-consuming thing. And the woman who's working on this for us now told me yesterday that she got, she got almost done and realized she had made a mistake. And so she had to pull a bunch of them out and start over again. And here's the thing. You, you get that much work done, you do that much, and you think, man, I've had it. That's good enough. I'm finished. But if you say that, all you've got is just a bunch of strings lying there. Now, the, the weft is the, the shuttle. The shuttle goes back and forth through here with different colors and things on it that then makes the weave. And it's a lot more fun. It's a lot less work. It's not near the tediousness that you have in threading all of these threads. But this, you just kind of work it back and forth and you move the pedals and, and it moves around. And it's a lot more interesting. And part of me would say, well, I'd like to do that, but I don't really want to take the time to do this. But again, if all you do is the weft... You don't, have a, you don't have a tapestry. You just got a bunch of strings lying there. What makes the beautiful outcome is the tension of the warp and the weft. And what makes beautiful things in our lives is the tension of what we know and what we're knowing. Of what we've learned and what we're learning of being foundationally committed to those foundational truths of our faith and yet always open to the newest things, the next thing that God wants to teach us and the next place God wants to move us. And particularly in those unexpected ways through unexpected people. John Case says in his book that talks about the word orthodoxy we tend to think that orthodoxy means right belief, but actually it really means right glory. Because the word doxa means glory. And it's not so much, we talk about things that are orthodox, it's not so much that you, that you know the right things, it's that you are, you are giving glory to the right person. This is about worship. And really, that's, the, that's the, the result of this. It's not that we believe the right things and we're good, that's all that matters, or that we're open and we're good, that's all that matters. It's that it's our focus, Jesus. That's where all of this is headed. Are, are we displaying more and more faith in Jesus? Is He the focus of our attention? I think about the Pharisees. They know everything, but they don't just miss Jesus. They crucify Jesus because they cannot believe that God would work in that way. I think about Nathaniel. John 1 tells us his story. Philip, one of his friends, has an encounter with Jesus. And he says, wow, I think we found the guy. And he runs to Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, I have found the guy. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? Sorry, God is not going to send us a Messiah from Nazareth. That's ridiculous. I'm never going to believe that. And Philip says to him, well, come see for yourself. And man, you have to give Nathaniel a ton of credit because he does. He goes with Philip and he, and he meets Jesus. And in two minutes, he looks at Philip and says, man, you're right. This is the guy. I was wrong. That's the mindset God wants for us. That's the mindset that leads us to deeper things with him and the fullness of life with him. 
When I was growing up, I was, as I said, my dad was a pastor in the Wesleyan Church, and all my family were pastors in the Wesleyan Church, all attended Wesleyan Church as far as I knew. And so I grew up, that was really the only thing I knew was the Wesleyan Church. That was all my experience. That was all my teaching, all my training, just the one church. When I graduated from high school, I was going to go to a Wesleyan college, a Wesleyan Bible school. And then my parents felt a call to missions, and so we ended up moving to Oregon. And we got out to Oregon, and I'm looking for a place to go to college. And we asked around, and people said, well, George Fox is a good school. What do you think about that? And so I'm like, all right, I don't know anything about George Fox. I've never heard of it before, but fine. So I applied, and I was accepted. And then I began to realize once I got there, I didn't know who George Fox was. I didn't know that George Fox was the founder of the Quakers, the Friends Church. I had no idea what I'd gotten myself into. And as, a, as I remember a freshman history class, and our professor, he was a, a lifelong Quaker. And he was teaching us history from a Quaker perspective. Not exclusively, but he was helping us understand that from that perspective. And the things that would make that important. And I remember fighting with him so much because that wasn't my narrow Wesleyan perspective. And I was really to go to the wall for my narrow Wesleyan perspective. And he was patient with me. And I would challenge him, and probably disrespectfully. And he would be patient, and he would help me, and he would work with me. Until eventually, my mind began to be opened. It doesn't mean that I believed it all or bought into everything that he said or what I was hearing. But all of a sudden, I began to see the truth in some things that he was saying. And I've looked back on that class my freshman year many, many times. And there are many days that I give thanks for Dr. Ralph Beebe because that wasn't just a moment when I, was, had, when I needed to be open to learn something about history. That was a spiritually defining moment for my life about whether I was going to be open to God. Because either we're humble and open or we're not. And I can guarantee you, if I had kept fighting and I hadn't been willing to, to let go of my pride and my fear and all the things that I was wrestling with, there's a good chance that I would, could have continued to be closed off to the thing, whatever new thing God wanted to teach me. You see, it's about being conformed to the image of Christ. And every one of us is in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And the question for us is, are we being conformed to the image of Christ? Or are we being conformed to that, that destructive caricature of the image of Christ? And maybe the question is not so much, what are you going to be when you grow up? But who are we becoming? Father, thank you for loving us enough to want relationship with us, for giving us the foundational truths of your word and calling us to ongoing joys of discovery with you. Help us to find joy in the tension.
through Christ Jesus. Amen.